I miss you. The reading today is from Revelations chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are at the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have, so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Well, I'm back. I say that joke every week, and you laugh every week. <laughs> don't know if that means I lack creativity or you're just easy. Uh, <laughs> I learned in uh, preaching class, insult everyone right at the beginning, and that just warms them up and makes them an uh, easy crowd. Uh, as you could hear from the text, we are in a series walking through the book of Revelation. We've called this series Kingdom Come. And at the beginning of the book of Revelation, it begins with a handful of messages. These like specific little letters written to these specific little churches all throughout the ancient Near East. And the book begins with these letters, but it sort of like grounds a much bigger letter. It gives context and place and understanding to the rest of the book which the churches are also going to receive, right? So they get a little message at the beginning, like, hey, this is for you, but the whole letter is also for them. And these little messages, these little letters at the beginning, they help us understand what the whole book is about, which is what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus in a contested world? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus when there are lots of things to worship in the world? What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus when allegiance is not so easy to determine? Because there are lots of things in the universe that want to claim allegiance from us. What does it look like to be a follower of Jesus when the world is somewhat difficult to navigate? Not all bad, but complicated complicated and difficult and hard to navigate and make sense of? What does it look like to be a follower of Jesus, maybe you could say, in the real world? And these little letters, they give us little snapshots into real churches that are wrestling with that question. How do we be followers of Jesus here in this city, in this town, with real issues and real questions and real pressures to navigate? Last week, we looked at the letter to the church at Sardis, and I think uh, that might have been the most difficult of the messages that we have read so far, because it was to a church that looked very healthy and alive on the one hand, 
The letter says, I know your reputation. It seems like you do many good works. You look very alive. But then as Jesus begins to peel back the layers of what's happening in that church, we find that actually under the surface of everything, that church was dead. That they may have looked alive on the outside, but inside they were withering away. Their faith was dying. Now today, kind of coming out of that letter to Sardis, we're looking at a church in Philadelphia. Not Philly, Philadelphia. Thank you. And in nearly every single way, the church at Philadelphia looks very different than the church at Sardis. If the church at Sardis is strong and alive-looking, then the church at Philadelphia is weak and not-so-alive-looking. That if you're just measuring, like, surface performance, these churches look very different. One seems strong and affluent. One seems weak and insignificant and pushed to the side. But as you pull back the layers again, if Sardis is actually dead and dying underneath, then Philadelphia is alive and vibrant underneath. And as we see these two churches kind of come one after the other, it challenges us to ask again, what is a faith that is healthy? What is a living faith? Now, faith is a word that we use a lot in the church. It's a a word that we use to describe the church. It's a word that we use to describe our Christian ways. It's also a word that we use to, like, uh, verb something, like have faith. Can you verb something? (laughs) But last week, one of the things that we, we did to define faith is we said this very, a couple of ideas around what faith is. We said that faith is participation in the way of God. It's what happens when beliefs get out of your mind and maybe out of your heart and into your body. It's what happens when you care about something and it begins to kind of spill out of you because you cannot hold it in abstract. You cannot hold it in theory. It needs to do something. It needs to get tangible. It needs to get its hands on something. Faith is what happens when Beliefs and ideas move into practice. Not perfection, not performance, but into action. It's like when you sit in a chair and not just believe in a chair. It's when you go swimming, not just read about swimming. Or it's when you actually are in relationship with someone, not just dream about being in relationship with someone. There's a real difference between dreaming about being in relationship with somebody. That's creepy versus actually being in relationship with somebody. Lots of us (laughs) dream about being in relationship with Jesus. That's creepy. We're not actually in relationship with Jesus because faith is what happens when it gets into us, when it becomes something, when it gets lived. For our mathletes, we said it like this. Faith is belief plus practice. Belief plus practice. Not perfection, not performance, but it's when our hands start to get a little dirty with the thing that we love, with the belief that we hold, with the idea that is compelling to us. Clarence Jordan, who was a civil rights leader and a Christian pastor in the 1960s, he had a really beautiful way of saying it, which is faith is when we're willing to risk something. We believe it so much that we're willing to risk it. It's when deeds 
are connected to dreams, is the way that he said it, which I think is very beautiful. Now, the tricky part about that is that this equation, belief and practice, or our understanding, or the things that we have talked about, well, it's not the only compelling answer to what it looks like to be a people of faith. This is the thing I'm arguing is what it looks like to be a people of faith, but it's not the only answer to what it looks like to be a people of faith. This early church lives around other stories, other religious stories, other compelling stories, in fact, that would offer a different understanding of what it looks like to be a people of faith. On one side of the early church is the nation of Rome, the empire of Rome. And Rome is a deeply religious place, as we have explored over the last couple of weeks. It believes its life, its practices, its actions are religious, that that gods are infused into the very fabric of their society. To participate in the market is to worship. To participate in government is to worship as a Roman. And so they have a faith story or an equation of what makes healthy, good faith. And I think the way that Rome sees it is this, that faith, good, healthy, living faith equals this, belief plus power. So for Rome, good faith is one where your belief meets your ability to accomplish something in the world around you, your ability to achieve something, your ability to get things done in the world around you. Now, that's one story of faith. On the other side of the early church, there is another story of faith. We see this in the text of Philadelphia, that one of the chief communities in which they are surrounded by is a devout Jewish community. And most early Christians are Jews, they come from that faith expression. So this story, this faith of the Jewish community around them is probably the most compelling. And for the Jewish community around them, faith looks like belief plus perfection. It's about what you eat. It's about how you dress. It's about living rightly. It's less about what happens outside of me. And I think that's because the Jewish community recognizes that there's very real limits to what they can do around them. They've been a people who have been oppressed, marginalized, and dispersed throughout the world for centuries. They've given up on trying to control what happens outside of them. So instead of controlling what happens outside of them, they're going to control what happens inside of them. And so healthy faith for these communities look like control of my body, of my habits. It's a white-knuckling of my life into my beliefs. I think both of these faith stories, they are rooted in really good impulses. It's a good impulse to make your belief a reality. It's a good impulse. We just said that, that faith is when our beliefs become real. So it's a good impulse. It's a good impulse, for example, for me to want my kids to be followers of Jesus. Or it's a good impulse for me to want to be healthy. It's a good impulse for me to want to look like a follower of Jesus, to to witness to a different world reality. Those are good impulses. The problem is I think that those impulses merge with our anxiety. And most of us manage anxiety with attempts at control. 
We try to control what is happening outside of us. We try to control what is happening in other people's lives. We try to control what other people are doing. Or we try to control ourselves, what we're doing, what's happening inside of me. And the problem is that we cannot control those things. Eventually, Rome falls. Eventually, the Jewish temple is destroyed. Actually, at this point, it has already been destroyed. Power and perfection cannot control all of life. Sometimes our families don't love Jesus, no matter how hard we work for them to. Sometimes our bodies do not work, no matter how controlling we are in our habits or our lifestyles or our rhythms or our eating habits. Sometimes the body seems to betray us. Sometimes... I cannot white-knuckle myself out of something. Sometimes my friends don't come home or respond the way that I wanted them to. In the letter to the church at Sardis, which is we came last week, Jesus says that their faith is dead. And I think in many ways, faith is destined to die when it is rooted in control because our lives will always experience the real cost of control, which is that we can't. And so if my faith is rooted in certainty, if my faith is rooted in my performance, if my faith is rooted in my own power, if my faith is rooted in my perfection, then as soon as my ability takes a shot, which it always does, then my whole faith story begins to unravel. And what are we left with except an empty and seemingly purposeless or meaningless story? So if power and perfection are not the practices of our faith, what is? What is it that Jesus is inviting us into? What is the other side of the faith equation that leads to something that is living and healthy and whole? This is what Jesus says to the church at Philadelphia in verse 8. I know that you have little strength, Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. What word does Jesus say? Verse 10, you have kept my command to endure patiently. I don't know what you hear or think of when you hear the word endure. Um, My first thought was like athletics. And the problem with that image, though it's true in many ways, the problem with that image in some ways is that if I think about athletics and I think about being a good athlete, and it sort of begins to put the weight on me again, how strong am I? How capable am I? How good am I at enduring difficult things? So then I did a little translation work. And by that I mean I did the internet. <laughs> it took a lot of years in Greek and Hebrew, and it's very bad. And here's something very interesting about the Greek word used here for endurance. It is more often than not, translated as stay and wait. Stay and wait. Those are fascinating words because they run so counter 
to the words power and perfection. Stay and wait. They almost feel slow. In fact, they almost feel weak. And those words are very difficult for me because control comes from anxiety. And when I experience anxiety, I want to control something. I want to use my power. I want to use my perfection to manage the world around me, to make it look like I believe that it should, or to make myself look like it should. So, for example, if I'm confronted with something that I have done, something difficult that I have done to someone else, my anxiety kicks in so fast. And it goes to two different places. Either I want to try and be so perfect that no one could ever confront me or that the accusation that's being leveled against me just can't stick. Because it's like, no, I am very perfect. Do you know who you're talking to? It's like, if I could just live above reproach, then no one would ever confront me. The problem is, I cannot do that. I cannot control that. I don't have that ability. My ability to control will always meet real life, and the cost will be my sense of self. The other thing that I will often do is that if I'm confronted, I'll jump in and want to fix something. It's the other side of this equation. If one is controlling me, the other one is controlling what happens outside of me. And so if Tori, my wife, comes to me, if someone in the community comes to me, my anxiety flares, and I want to fix it. I want to fix the situation in which I have found myself in. If I can just program right or plan accordingly or offer you good answers, then the problem will be taken care of. You ever been there? I think we can see immediately where those things are weak. I can never be perfect enough, and to believe that will crush me. And true pain and true hurt and true wounds are not fixed by my attempts at controlling them. And maybe more problematic than either of that is that both, both of those endeavors, control or perfection or performance and perfection and power, center me. Which is a big problem when you're trying to enter into relationship with someone else who is confronting you or naming something with you. I love these words, stay and wait. It's the opposite of power and perfection. In that moment, my job is to stay and to wait. It's not to fix something. It's not to perform something. It's not to convince myself of my own perfection. It's not to try to convince someone else of my perfection. It's not to try to fix something. It is to stay. And that is uncomfortable. But it also creates space for something new. And my job is not to fix it, but it is to wait, not to control, not to manage. It is to listen, to be humble, to pay attention, to stay and wait. Staying and waiting is what you want your friend to do. When you come to them with something difficult, or when they come to you with something difficult, you want them to stay and wait to be with you. Staying and waiting is what you want a good parent to do when a child spins. 
Staying and waiting is what you want someone to do when someone else is sabotaging their life to create healthy boundaries around them that will not move. Staying and waiting creates safe spaces. That's what it means to endure patiently, to stay and wait. And I think one of the reasons, maybe the chief reason, Jesus celebrates the church in Philadelphia for their staying and waiting, for their patient endurance, is that patient endurance or staying and waiting creates spaces of presence. Presence language is loaded throughout this passage. In verse 7 and 8, this is what Jesus says to the church. He says, these are the words of him who is holy and true. That's Jesus. He holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. This is an interesting moment because it's referencing an Old Testament passage in the book of Isaiah when a steward in the house of David, so David's a king of Israel, a steward receives a key to David's house. And with that key, he can enter into the throne room. He can enter into the house. He can enter into the presence of the king. And so in using that reference here, the key of David, he's saying that the church through Jesus has access into the king's presence. Jesus actually says the same thing to Peter in Matthew 18 when he says, I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom. What you loose will be loose. What you bind will be bound. The idea is that your patient endurance, your waiting and staying, have opened a door into the kingdom, and it allows you and others to enter it. That when we wait and stay, we open up spaces of God's presence. Here is what I mean by that. Staying and waiting, as opposed to performance or perfection and power, Staying and waiting decenter the self and recenter God. Because power and perfection are about our ability to control something, about our ability to manage something. But staying and waiting, enduring, is about God's power. It recognizes the limitations of human ability and instead humbly submits them before God. Staying and waiting is sort of like gardening. There's things that you can do. There's things that you can do. There's management you can do. There's practices you can do. There's pruning that you can do. You show up. You stay. You wait. There's things you do. But there's a lot that you do not do in gardening. Like be the sun. (laughs) That's it. That's all I know about science. I was going to try to go on, and I was like, I don't know what else is happening. That's how limited we do things. You stay and wait, though. You're participating in a process that is beyond you, that is bigger than you, that is outside of your control. And sometimes things don't go well in gardening. Sometimes the weather goes to like 120 degrees and you put the little black curtains over and it still melts the plants. Staying and waiting centers God. It centers the activity of God, and it decenters the self. You are not the hero of that story, and you don't have to be. 
And as we stay and we wait and we recenter and allow God to be God, then we also begin to create space for others. See, when I try and fix something or perfect something, I close space. I make it about me and not the other. I make it about me and not you. I don't know if you're in a relationship with somebody, but if you have ever had an argument with a friend, a spouse, a loved one, a child, a parent, and you got to fix their problems, do they feel seen? No. No, because you have closed them down. You have stopped seeing them. You have not created space for them. You have made it about you. But patient endurance or waiting and staying is about creating enough room for someone else to breathe too. And when that happens, when we create space, when we stay and we wait, when we patiently endure, we create space. Spaces of presence where we and others, we with others get to encounter God. Jesus makes this promise at the end of the passage in verse 11. He says this, I'm coming soon, so hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Now that's a weird metaphor for us today, but the biblical writers really like to talk about people being formed into a temple. Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 uses a very, very similar set of language. I don't have this one on the screen. But Paul says, You are no longer strangers, but you are fellow citizens. You are God's peoples and members of his household. And in him, you are being built together to become a dwelling place for God through his Spirit. God is making his people into a living temple, a place where God's presence dwells. But it is not through our perfect or powerful faith. Instead, it is in practices of trust like staying and waiting. It is through our willingness to let go of control and to make room for God and others in our lives I believe God is non-coercive. God will not force you to let go. Because God also makes room for you. Because God is always making room and space within God's self for us. What is the cross if not God absorbing all of the hostility of the world around him, the anger, the violence, the betrayal, taking it all within himself and then offering us space and place to belong. It is God staying with us. No matter what we throw, no matter what we give, no matter what we deliver, it's patient endurance. And in the same way as we participate in that kind of life, that way of Jesus' existence, we, like Jesus, create space, places where God might encounter us and where God might encounter those around us, where a door to the kingdom might be opened. This is a big statement, but as we patiently endure, we become the meeting place of heaven and earth.
but not through our power or our perfection or our performance, but through our willingness to let go, to make room for God in ourselves and around us. So that returns us to our very first question. What is a living faith? We said that faith equals belief and practice, and I think that is true. I said it. But I want to say what kind of practice, and here it is. It is the practice of presence. It's staying and waiting. It's making room in ourselves for God. It's handing over control. It is listening, paying attention, being with. It's staying and waiting. Missia, what if? What if the practice of presence is what defined our faith? Not performance, not power, not perfection, but presence. What might that mean for you? Let's just begin with our own internal self-reflection. What might it mean for you, for your faith and your story of faith to be defined by presence? By God's welcome of you into God's own presence. By God staying and waiting with you and for you. And what did that begin to then move in us and out of us into the world around us? What might our lives look like, our neighborhoods look like, our communities look like, our families look like? How might we begin to reimagine those places if our faith story was faith plus presence? Not perfection, not power, and not performance, but presence, being with, paying attention, staying and waiting. What might that do to the way that we live with our families, our roommates, our neighbors, our coworkers? I don't know. But I do know the promise of Jesus to the Philadelphians is that he would be with them. That in trial he would keep them, not rescue them from the difficulties or uncontrollable places of life, but be present to them. So the only commitment that I can make to you is the same one that Jesus makes to us, which is if our faith is belief and presence, well then we will encounter the person of Jesus. And so will those around us. That's the invitation to every single one of us today. It's what we practice as we gather in this space. It's why we gather in this space. It's not because this place is holier than other places, but it's because in singing and in hearing the story and in gathering at the table, we have these practices that help us know what it looks like to to participate in presence. And chief among those practices is our gathering at the table. This moment is a symbol, an invitation to know what it looks like to be received into Jesus' staying and waiting. Into Jesus' at cost to himself making space for us at his table so we could be present to one another. 
like a brother or a friend or a parent who always makes room in himself for us at the table. So, Miss you, I'm going to close, and then I'm going to invite you to the table to receive Jesus' self, a place of presence, so that we might leave this place carrying the invitation, the practice of presence everywhere we go. Let's do it, let me pray. Jesus, you promised to be with us. So today, as we've heard your story declared, and as we come to the table, and as you create more space for us to sing, would we respond to your presence? You won't force us. You won't coerce us. You create space. And so in the space of you, would we come to see ourselves in all our attempts at performance, all our attempts at perfection, all our attempts at power. Would we let those go to stay and wait with you? God, as we encounter your presence, would we find ourselves freed? Freed from those burdens of performance and perfection and freed to enter into the world around us, a people of people who know your face and people who carry your name. Can we ask these things in your name? Amen. Missy, when you're ready, we invite you to the table. The elements are sealed still for COVID safety, so you can have communion at the table, pray, take a moment to be here with someone you know or by yourself, or you can take the elements and go back to your seat if that feels more comfortable, and then continue worshiping with us.